Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we are so thankful that we can come and worship you. And such, such joy in your presence, Lord. Th thank you for revealing. Holy Spirit, thank you for revealing the presence of Jesus and the love of the Father to us today. And Jesus, as we study uh, the history, the record of your birth, the record of your, uh, of your ancestry, we just ask you to speak to us and give us the encouragement through it that each of our hearts need. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so chapter 1 of Matthew 1 starts off by saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So this whole idea of genealogy, we talked, we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. What it did, particularly for the Jewish people, was it gave them identity because they all had to be part of a tribe. And it enabled them to demonstrate, I'm really part of the tribe of Issachar, I'm part of the tribe of Judah. In one case, uh, they had to, the priests had to prove that they were part of the priestly line. So they had to come up with genealogies that took them back to, to, the, right, to, the, right, um, to the right ancestry in order to maintain their role as priests. But genealogy does something uh, beyond that. And, and let, let's think of it more as like family history. Because history is a story. And genealogy gives us the history, the story behind the life. And it, it, it does many things for us. It gives us kind of like a jumping off point in life if we understand it. It, um, it gives courage. You know, to, to understand where you come from can give, you can give your heart courage. I was reminded of this not long ago when my second son, Brent, said that his daughter was, I can't, I can't remember what the situation was, but she was struggling with something at school, and she just wanted to quit. And there's a, bio, there's a, a book written of the history of the Cochrane family from uh, Great Britain and the British Isles, and it's called 600 Years of Warfare. And um, the Cochrans are known for having many generals and 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 uh, captains and admirals and ca in, in, in the army. And so the book was titled The Fighting Cochrans. And Brent told his daughter that. He said, remember that book? Because his father-in-law had bought him a copy of the book. He said, we're called The Fighting Cochrans. What that means is we don't give up. That means is when things get hard, we keep going. And we're willing to face hardship because we know there are good things ahead. And that really encouraged her. That gave her strength in her heart to know that. And so genealogy, family history can just be a source of incredible courage. And looking at Jesus' genealogy here, it, it, it not only connected him historically to key people and to key promises, but it, it as well would have filled his heart as he grew up. From the age of 12, he knew who he was. From the age of 12. And so for him to be looking back and realizing, I'm the son of David, would have encouraged his heart and given him something to go for, you know, some, some stepping off point in life. But it's, it also tells us this, that we're not just individuals. And we don't just exist as individual generations. You know, in our culture today, we are so individualistic, and every person thinks, well, what's my truth? I mean, what could be more ludicrous than a statement like that? No offense to anybody out there listening to this or anybody here who has used that term, but my truth, no, I want the truth. My truth just means my opinion. 
and I'm trying to gussy it up and make it look better than it really is. So I call it my truth. No, we want the truth. But my truth, it just makes it so, we're so individualistic. And then we, we separate the generations. And we say, well, this is generation XYZ, and that's generation Q, and on and on and on. And God doesn't look at it that way. He looks at the generations as being integrally connected to each other. And so Jesus was connected to all the generations before him, and he's connected to all the generations after him. And you are connected to the generations before you and after you. And what that means then, too, is that as people alive today, we are connected. And we are connected in a depth and in a way that we can't really fathom. But from God's perspective, he looks at us and he says, oh, you believe in Jesus, my son, and you believe in Jesus, my son. There, there is a connection between the two of you that goes far deeper than either one of you could ever comprehend. And so to begin to view ourselves that way is so important. And a genealogy really helps us to do that. Uh, th- th- this, this helps us to do that. Do you know um, in the Old Testament when David, we're going to talk about David in a few moments, when he fought Goliath and he killed Goliath, King Saul didn't say, what military school did that young man go to? He didn't say, what form of, mar-? He's obviously he has studied martial arts. You know, what, was, he, was he a cage fighter or what? I mean, how did he get, how did he get so good at this? What he asked was one simple question. He said, who is that young man's father? Because he saw Jesse, David's father, connected with David so tightly that what David did gave honor to his father. And so we we recognize this. This type of connection is so real. Elijah, the great prophet in the Old Testament, he was ready to give up. He was ready to quit. He goes to this mountain, and God speaks to him at the mountain in a cave. And he says, Elijah, I still have work for you to do. Three things you're going to do. He tells him, all right, you go and do these three things. Do you realize Elijah only did the first one, which was to anoint Elisha as the next prophet? And then Elisha went on and did the other two things. Isn't that cool? See, God saw them generationally as spiritual father and spiritual son as their lives just overlapping almost. And what one did, uh, the other's credited for. And so genealogy gives that to us. It shows us that. It demonstrates this to us. Now, this genealogy shows us Jesus' place really in the unfolding story of God's redemption of mankind. Because the whole thing is a story. And and this is the great story that ties all of humanity together. Everything in the world can be explained with this story, that God created mankind to put us here on this earth, that he gave us authority over this earth, over all the animals of the earth, over the earth itself. He gave us authority over it. And then his enemy came in and through deceit, and by the way, Satan is like the ultimate con man. He conned a Eve. He conned them into, into turning to him. They gave, they ignorantly, in ignorance, gave the authority. I'm not saying that they sinned in ignorance. Eve did. Adam didn't. Adam wanted to be with Eve, and he couldn't conceive of, of being separated from Eve. So Adam entered into it with his eyes open. 
But they didn't realize the full import of that. They didn't realize what they were doing was actually switching teams. And they were taking the authority they had been given and they were giving it to Satan. And so Satan, then God's enemy, has wreaked havoc on the earth. He has brought evil and genocide. He has brought hatred, racism. All, all of the evil in the world that we see comes from that action of Adam and Eve giving their authority over to Satan because then he had the authority over the earth. And yes, God could have stepped in at that moment and crushed him. He could have stepped in at that moment and ended the whole thing. If he had, you and I wouldn't be here. If he had, Adam and Eve would not be in his presence right now. See, God created humanity, and he stayed with his plan for humanity. He stayed with the plan now of redeeming humanity. And so everything from that point on is the history of redemption. It's the history of God bringing about redemption in the world. And that's what this genealogy represents. Wilson did a great job last week, by the way. If you, if you weren't here, go back and pick that message up and listen to it. It was really fantastic. We're gonna, what we're going to do this week and next is just pull out a few of the key people in the genealogy, and we're going to touch on them. So we're not going to hit every person in the genealogy, but we're going to hit the key ones with the hope that we all go away with a better understanding of the power of, of this genealogy and are able to read it with enthusiasm and with joy because we see what's behind it. And so today we pick up where Wilson left off last week. I'm actually going to back up into his message. And it says, Salmon, this is uh, Matthew 1, 5 through 7. And it says this, Salmon was the father of Boaz, Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. That's, and Wilson pointed out that, this, uh, this genealogy comes in three sections of 14, 14 generations up to David. And so this is where the first section ends. Then the next section begins with the next statement when it says David was the father of Solomon. And then uh, the translation I used, I should have used a different translation. It adds these words to the text. It is this, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Literally, the text only says this, David was the father of Solomon by her of Uriah. And so it was by the wife of Uriah. And then it says, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Now, just to back up a step, Wilson pointed this out last week. Rahab was a harlot, a Gentile prostitute who had heard about everything God had done to get the Jews out of Israel. And she's looking around at all the idols in Jericho, and she's saying none of these idols have ever done anything. If this God can part the Red Sea and defeat the army of Egypt, then I want to know more about him. And so she already has it in her heart, something set on the fact that this God is something. And so, so to the first century Jew reading this, they, would, they were under assault from their friends and family, Jewish friends and family who were not believers in Jesus. First of all, this Jesus, how could he possibly be the son of David? How could he possibly be the Messiah? The genealogy answers that. But secondly, these Jews were worshiping with Gentiles. And they, they, would have, they were assaulted because of that, because the Jews believed they should not worship with Gentiles. 
And so as soon as they read Rahab's name here, and maybe even Tamar's name earlier, as soon as they read that, they think, wait a second, God's always loved the Gentiles. It's always been God's intent to include the Gentiles. And so it would have just strengthened their hearts in what they were doing, that they were worshiping the right way and with the right people. And so Rahab first, and then Ruth. You know, what's the only book of the Bible that is titled by a gen, the Gentile's name? Ruth. Well, maybe Luke too, the Old Testament. Let's not count the New Testament, okay? Uh, Ruth. And Ruth was uh, it, th this woman that was a Moabite, and she had married a Jewish man because this man's parents, the wife was Naomi, and her husband moved to Moab because there was a famine, and they could get food there. So both of their sons married two women, Orpah and Ruth, and um, then the father died, and the two sons died. And so, not, so now you have Naomi, the mother, you have Orpah and Ruth, her daughter-in-laws. And she tells them, you're both young women, stay here, go back to your family, find a husband, have children, have a good long life. And Orpah, with tears, says, okay, I'm, I'm going. She leaves. And Ruth make, makes this other statement. You've heard this at weddings, possibly. She says, no. She says, where you go, I will go. She says, where you lodge, I will lodge. She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and where you are buried, I will be buried. Isn't that beautiful? How would you like to have her in your family line? Man, that would strengthen your heart, wouldn't it? So, then we see as we go on that uh, Jesse is born to Obed, and then to Jesse comes David the king. And I love it, David the king. Wasn't the first king. Saul was the first king, but Saul was unfaithful to God. And God said, I'm going to find someone who has a heart for me. And he said, I found this guy, David, and he has a heart for me. He's going to be my king. So David was the first godly king, and, the, and he was the one who received the promises from God that he would, um, that he would have an ancestor, that, or not an ancestor, but he would have someone in his ancestral line that would be king forever, which was Jesus. And that's why they called Jesus the son of David. If you remember the triumphal entry, one of the things they said about Jesus, they said, hail to David, hail to the son of David. And it angered the Pharisees so much because they knew son of David meant Messiah. Son of David meant the one who's gonna fulfill the promise to David. And so Jesus and David have this connection and they have a lot in common because obviously David loved God, had a heart for God, and Jesus loved God, had a heart for his father. Both uh, rose from anonymity. David, he's a shepherd boy out in the fields. Jesus, a carpenter in Nazareth, which was a place that was looked down on in all of Israel. Nazareth was one of the cities that was considered the place you did not want to be from. And so they both rose from anonymity. And a third thing they had in common was they both faced rejection. They both faced a lot of rejection. David, first of all... Um, he was rejected by his own father, Jesse, as a legitimate possibility to be the next king. Because Samuel, the prophet, God says to him, hey, I'm rejecting Saul. I, I want you to anoint someone else to be king. 
He says, go to the house of Jesse. So Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he says, I want to see your sons. And so the first son comes in. He's a tall, strapping, good-looking guy. And Samuel says to himself, he must be the one. And God says, no, he's not. Because God looks, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. He says, I've examined his heart. He's not the one. And he goes through all of his sons. And Samuel, don't you have any other sons? And, he, and, and Jesse said, well... I've got this shepherd, the, the, the youngest of the bunch is out in the fields shepherding the sheep. And he said, bring him. And he brings him in, and Samuel immediately recognizes David is the next king. And he anoints him with oil. But, but his dad didn't even see him as someone who should be considered for that. And he, he experienced more rejection. When he went to fight, uh, when he went to, to the army and seized Goliath, his older brother, with contempt, says to him, what are you doing here? And just so much resentment. So he was rejected by his oldest brother. And that hurts. You know, if, if you're a younger brother and you're rejected by your older brothers, your older siblings, that really hurts. He was rejected and pursued by King Saul for years and years and years, hiding and living in caves. And finally, when Saul was killed and David became king, he only became king of Judah. And for seven years, the northern tribes, that was called Israel, the northern tribes rejected him. And it wasn't until the end of those seven years that he brought all of Israel together and the northern tribes accepted him then as their king. Now, David had this. He had the ability to trust God to fulfill his promises. And he had this promise. He was anointed to be king. He had, two times he had the opportunity to kill Saul. Both times he said, uh -uh, I'm not going to do it. I, am, I have this prophetic word that I'm going to be king, and I'm not going to manufacture it. I am not going to go against my own values to honor the king so that I can become king. And he had such honor in his heart for Saul, even though Saul was so undeserving of that honor. He had such honor for that office. He said, no, I'm not going to kill Saul. When Saul's time comes, it'll be God who brings that about, not me. And Jesus was very much like that. Jesus waited from, from the time he was 12 years old on. We know he knew who he was. He waited 18 years before he entered into his ministry. And then he could have forced issues in those three years of ministry different times. But different times, especially in the Gospel of John, it says his hour had not yet come. And there were times when they tried to kill him, but it says, but his hour had not yet come. And so it was all God's timing. And David had the ability to trust God's timing. And you see Jesus reflecting that same thing. And, and you see Jesus rejected and persecuted by his enemies, viciously lied about and, and assaulted. Every, every time Jesus stood up to speak... After a certain introductory period, when he started to become known, every time he spoke, there were faces in that crowd that hated him. They were there, and they were ready to jump on any word he spoke that they thought they could have used to their advantage to accuse him. And so Jesus lived with persecution just like David did. But Jesus responded like David. Acts 2.23 says, or 1 Peter 2.23 says this, 1 Peter 2.23. It says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself 
to him who judges righteously. So Jesus, has, he, has, he has King David, uh, one of his ancestors, as an example of how you respond to this stuff. And Jesus responds the same way David did. In Acts 4.11, it says this about Jesus. It says, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. David, rejected by Israel, rejected by King Saul, ultimately becomes the foundational king of this whole nation and the one that receives the messianic promise. Jesus, rejected by the Pharisees, rejected by the people, even uh, on the day that they asked, do you want this thief, Barabbas, or do you want Jesus? They, they shouted out they wanted Barabbas. They rejected him. But he was exalted and has now become king of kings and lord of lords. Now, you see all of this in, in the life of David. And, um, but th then we read this. Then we read, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And I've been pondering this. For the last couple of weeks, why, does it, why doesn't it say just by, by, um, by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? Or why does it just say by Bathsheba? And let us, hear, let us figure out the rest. And here's what I've come up with. When it just simply says the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, it's putting all the emphasis here on Uriah. And we all know it was murder. We, if you know the story, David did not go out to war with the army. He stayed behind in the palace. He looks across a couple of houses, and he sees Bathsheba sunbathing on the top of her roof. She's beautiful, and he sends his, his men to go get her. They bring her back. He has a, commits adultery with her. I mean, with him being in the position he was in, it could have been rape. It, it could have been that she was not a willing participant even, but just out of fear of the king. And so she becomes pregnant, and David doesn't know what to do now. So he actually has Uriah killed. He's in battle, and he tells his top general, have everyone else withdraw and leave Uriah there alone. And so they abandon him on the battlefield, and he's killed on the battlefield. It takes a year for David to repent, but in that year, he, at one point, he wrote Psalm 32, which is the story of his repentance, and Psalm 51 and he says, when I hid my sin, my body wasted away. He says, your hand was heavy on me, day and night. And after a year, a prophet comes to him, and through a story that he tells David, he opens David's eyes. David has revelation as to what he's actually done, and he does repent. And Psalm 32 and 51 tell you the, the joy of repentance is actually what they're about, how to repent and the joy of repentance, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. But it took that time for him to come to, come to his senses but the reason I believe that it's, it says Uriah, the, the wife of Uriah was that this was more than adultery and it was more than murder. It, it was really the, the height of betrayal. You see, Uriah was one of David's top warriors. 
there was a group called David's 30 Mighty Men. They were men who had joined him when he was fleeing, when he was living in caves and running from Saul, and no one knew if David would ever be anything more than just this fugitive. Uriah came to him at that point in time, and Uriah pledged his loyalty to David at that point of time. And Uriah had stood beside David and fought with him and defended him. And now David has become king. And, and Uriah, as one of David's 30 mighty men, he lives close enough to the palace that you could go to the palace roof and see the top of his house. So that tells you something about the connection. There must have been some connection there. And then when David was trying to hide the sin, he has Uriah come back and they have a meal together and drink and there sounds like two good old boys together. And then he tries to send Uriah down to his wife, but Uriah has so much integrity that he says, if my men are in the field sleeping, then I cannot go in and sleep with my wife. And he sleeps outside. And so there was a closeness and a bond between these two men that made this an ultimate act of betrayal on David's part of this relationship. And so you look at all of that and and we see this, that this is where Jesus and, and David kind of depart storylines. The whole thing with Bathsheba and, and this sin because Jesus never sinned. And this whole thing with betrayal because Jesus never betrayed anyone, never betrayed any of his people. But Jesus himself was betrayed. So he knew betrayal. But David here, their, their, their paths diverge at this point. And yet at the same time, in another way, their paths really come together more at this point than any other time. Because Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took the sin of David's adultery, murder, and betrayal of a close friend. Jesus took that on himself and died for it. And that's why David was, was, was able to, uh, to, to actually repent because of what Jesus was going to ultimately do. That's why God was able to say when David repented, okay, you can stay king because of what Jesus was ultimately going to do to, to pay, pay for uh, everything David had done. The child David had with um, Bathsheba died, but then amazingly, in the way God works, he takes these things that are just horrific, and he says, I'm going to use that as part of the story. And so then he ha David and Bathsheba have another child named Solomon, and Solomon ultimately becomes the king. Isn't that in incredible? How through all of this brokenness and pain, it, the, the, all the heroic things that were done, all the wonderful things about all these people in Jesus' line mixed in with all the brokenness and the pain and the heartache. And God just overcomes it all and is able to accomplish his purpose through it all. Now, that should be a promise for us. You know, as you look at your life, maybe as you look at your family history even, you look back, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, Mark Twain said, if you look far enough, everyone will find a prince and a horse thief in their family history. But maybe, maybe you're looking back at yours and you're saying, yeah, my parents were addicts and their parents were divorced and, 
and had broken relationships every, everywhere. They, and, and I have a family history of this. Listen, God can cancel all of that and bring blessing into your life. That's what he does. That's what he does. And so, wisdom. Do you know what Solomon said about wisdom in one place? He said, the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. Another place it says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You know what the fear of the Lord does? It shows you how much you need wisdom. And so the beginning of wisdom is recognizing you need wisdom and then seeking wisdom. That's the beginning right there. The wisest thing you can do is say, I need wisdom. I'm going to set my heart on seeking wisdom. That was Solomon's life. But the son he had, Rehoboam, lacked wisdom. And Rehoboam, after Solomon died, he took the advice of these young counselors that told him that what he should do is put a harder burden on the people of Israel. The older guys said, look, your dad was pretty hard on these people. If you just go out and tell them you're going to lighten the load, they will love you and be loyal to you forever. And the young guys said, no, go out and show them how tough you are. And so he went out and showed them how tough he was, and it split the kingdom in two. The northern tribes then abandoned Judah and, uh, and Rehoboam as their king. And so then Rehoboam has a son named Abijah who was a bad king, lived for three years as king, and then dies. So you have pretty good King David, has major failure, repents. You have pretty good King Solomon, good guy, but he has his flaws too. Then you have uh, Rehoboam, who was a bad king, and you have Abijah, who was a bad king, and then Abijah's son was named Asa, and guess what? Asa was one of the best kings ever. Read about Asa in 2 Chronicles 14 to 16. You'll see some phenomenal things about Asa there. So what this tells us is that family history is important, and take the encouragement you can get from it. And some of us here today, I think, are resting on on family history and family blessings that are coming down line, and praise God for that. Praise God for the families that where you could say your grandfather and your great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather honored God and loved God. But you still have to choose it for yourself. Solomon had wisdom. Rehoboam heard his dad's wisdom, but he never grasped it. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't reach out for it. And so each of us, while, our, while the generations are like this, they're, they're intertwined in God's eyes, and we're so close in God's eyes, at the same time, each generation has to choose for itself. And so each of us have to look at the promises of God and say, that's what I want. I want wisdom. God, I'm going to pursue wisdom. I'm going to look for wisdom no matter what. And I just want to say, to read this whole thing from the perspective of promise and to think about this as uh, this, this genealogy as filled with promises. And, and you see the promise to Abraham. And Abraham, as, um, as the father of the faith, Abraham was one who had a child at the age of 100. And what does that tell you? What promise is in that story? Here's the promise. It's never too late. Okay? Never too late. You look back, you say, oh, man, I've wasted so many years. Now oh, forget about that. It's never too late. God can accomplish in your life in one year 
what could have been accomplished in 40 years in someone else's life. And so it's never too late. It's never too late with God. That's a promise from God. Tell yourself that. Let's just all say that together. It's never too late, okay? It's never too late. So whatever you've done, whatever you've focused on, regret, you look back, say, oh, man, if I could just have that again, you know, I would do. Whatever you look back on, you just say, no, okay, God, maybe I blew it there. But you, you, you are the one who forgives us when we blow it, and it's never too late. And you can still work in me and through me to accomplish everything you have for me. And, and we yield to him. We, we, we rest in him. The promise of Rahab, that's a promise that says God, God spreads a pretty good table and everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome at the table of God. There's no one that's pushed aside. No, no one that says, nope, your profession, you can't, no, we don't want any harlots here. No, we don't want anyone that smells like that here. No, everyone is welcome at the table of God. That's the promise of Ahab, of, of, of Rahab. The promise of Ruth is there's always hope, always hope. You, you might be a widow living in, an, in a foreign land. You don't know what's going to happen next. If you know her story, there's always hope. No matter what the situation, there's, in each one of these, there's a story, there's a promise there. Jesse, a father of David the king, um, th there are promises in each one of these that we can walk in. And, and as I've said, some are carrying on a family line of blessings, and praise God for that. That's just so awesome. You know, one of the things I love is when I meet somebody who says, well, you know, I just grew up believing in Jesus, and I never deviated never took a step away. I don't know exactly at what point I was actually saved. I know I am now. Never did drugs, never drank, never ran around. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. It is wonderful to have a family history like that. Some of us were probably here thinking that what we're doing is breaking negative family patterns, maybe communication patterns, addictions, unbelief through Jesus. And that's wonderful, too, because God's big time into redemption. He loves redemption, and he loves the whole redemption story. And so whichever place you're coming from, it's your choice today. What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do? We know what David did. We know what Solomon did. We know what Rehoboam and Abijah did. We don't know the full story of Asa. If you did, you'd be saying, I want to be like Asa. But we have the choice today, and, and to realize that it's never too late. And here, here's the thing with family line. No matter what, beyond my natural family line, there is this truth, that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, my history tracks back to Him, okay? My history bypasses a whole bunch of stuff from the early years of my life, a whole bunch of stuff. My history goes back to, okay, 20 years old, accepted Jesus Christ. Okay, whoosh, over here. There was this other history there. But God says, nope, that's, that's, that's gone now. Your history traces back to Jesus and the cross and what he did on the cross. And so we have this new identity through Christ that where we are, we are changed and we are new and we are renewed and we have these promises from God. And let, let's just stand to pray, okay? Let's stand. Father, I pray that your promises would
just crash into our hearts right now. Crash into our hearts, Lord. The promise that it's never too late. The promise that everyone's welcome at the table of God. The promise that no matter what the situation, there's always hope. We can live in hope and walk in hope. The promise that we can be new people, Jacob, deceiver, Israel, the one who holds on to God. What a promise, Lord. I pray, Father, that Holy Spirit, that you would take these promises and just like dewdrops, just drop them into the hearts that are needed right now and light them up, Lord. Light them up. Ignite them with the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.